0: We'll hear argument now in number 93744, the Director of the Office of Workmen's Compensation versus the Greenwich Collieries. Uh, Mr. Dumont.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. In adjudications under the Black Lung Benefits Act and the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, the Department of Labor and the courts have long applied an evidentiary tiebreaker known as the True Doubt Rule. There are three points fundamental to understanding the proper outcome of this case what the True Doubt Rule is, where it comes from, and why its application does not contravene the Administrative Procedure Act. First, it's important to understand what the True Doubt Rule does and does not say. It is applied in the adjudication of contested benefit claims, it resolves factual issues in favor of a claimant if, but only if, two prior conditions are met. First, each party, both the claimant and the employer, must have adduced substantial, competent evidence to support the position that that party is taking in the adjudication. And second, the trier of fact must have evaluated the evidence and concluded that the evidence produced on each side is equally probative. In those rare circumstances of evidentiary equipoise, the two-doubt rule intervenes to direct the judgment be rendered for the claimant. How
2: rare is rare, Mr. Dumont? Uh, uh, One of the amicus briefs says that it seems to happen all the
1: time. Well, I think that uh, we can see that it doesn't happen all the time from the fact that, as the statistics quoted in our brief point out, uh, under current law, black lung claimants are successful in in achieving benefits only in about 7 percent of the cases. Now, with the true doubt rule being applied all the time, one would assume that it would be somewhere between 50 and 100 percent. What percentage of those 7 percent are are true doubt cases? Those are the cases, well, we don't know presumably uh, less than all of them. So that in even a smaller percentage is the true doubt rule determinative of the outcome. Now, it may be that in many cases the rule is recited, or it may be in some cases that the rule determines one issue but does not determine the outcome, because there are various cases where a claimant prevails on one issue because of the true doubt rule, but uh, another issue uh, goes in favor of the employer. Was the one, true, Go ahead. I'm,
2: well, I, I'm just pursuing that. One, one ALJ seems to have found uh, true doubt in... Uh, four cases in in one year, complete equipoise of the evidence, which one would think would be extraordinary.
1: Well, we think that uh, in some of these cases, there are reasons why the ALJ, particularly reasons why the ALJs may find uh, equipoise more commonly than normal, Um, particularly because you often have cases such as the early cases under the Longshore Act or the Maher case here, where there's a complicated question of medical causation. You have respectable medical opinions on both sides of the issue. In some cases, the ALJ
3: have figures for the rarity under the Longshore Workers Act, uh, comparable to the black lung benefits, is it the same?
1: There are no comparable compiled or published statistics. The Department of Labor informs us that the true doubt rule is involved in approximately seven or eight percent of longshore cases. So the figure would be comparable to that extent.
0: Well, and that is your definition
1: of very rare—seven so or eight percent of the cases. Well we would simply point out that it's not being applied across the board and indiscriminately by ALJs to avoid their uh, responsibility to evaluate the evidence and to reach conclusions as to which party has produced a preponderance where one party or the other has produced a preponderance. We think that the evidence is is generally to the effect that the ALJs (coughs) take their responsibility very seriously and that the, the Benefits Review Board and the Courts of Appeals, in turn, take their responsibility seriously to review those judgments and to make sure that in cases where this rule is applied, one can fairly say that the fact finder was not able to uh, determine that one side had produced a preponderance.
4: Mr. Demont what is the standard of review of the ALJ on whether or not it was correct to say the, the evidence was an equipo- equi- equipoise?
1: Both the Benefits Review Board and the Court of Appeals apply a, a substantial evidence standard of review in general to ALJ decisions. And in this case, they would apply the same standard of review that a court would normally apply it on any ultimate finding of fact, which is to say it will be deferential to the resolution of factual issues by the fact finder.
4: Does that mean that as a practical matter, if the ALJ says there's equipoise and there is some evidence on both sides, that that will be accepted?
1: Not always. It does mean that in many cases, in, in a case where it's appropriate to apply the rule, it is probable that any one of three decisions would be upheld, decision in favor of either party or decision that the evidence is an equipoise and therefore that, that goes to the claimant. But uh, it's important to point out that both the Benefits Review Board and the Courts of Appeals have reversed decisions uh, below applying the True Doubt Rule on the ground that, as in any other ultimate finding of fact, the trier of fact was simply out of line in concluding that the evidence was in equipoise or favored one party or the other. Now, the last thing I'd like to point out about the True Doubt Rule and how it applies is that it never, it's important to understand this, it never permits a claimant to be awarded benefits without having produced evidence, uh, substantial evidence, to support his entitlement under the statute and the regulations. And it never denies the employer a full and fair opportunity to meet that evidence and to establish that benefits should not be awarded (coughs) under the statutory criteria. The true True Doubt Rule grows out of a long tradition of adjudication by the courts primarily under the Longshore Act. You'll recall that that act was passed in 1927, with the district courts primarily the forum for litigation. As long ago as 1944, the Second Circuit in the F.H. Madra versus Lowe case uh, upheld an administrative decision on facts remarkably similar to those in the Maher Terminals case. In other words, in that case, uh, a worker had sustained a head injury at work, developed Parkinson's disease, and the question was whether causation could be shown or inferred. And there there was no reliance there, I take it, on any administrative regulation? There was no regulation, but what there was was an administrative finding by the agency, by the deputy commissioner, that the evidence was essentially an equipoise, that he couldn't tell from the respectable medical opinions in front of him which was the better scientific answer, and that therefore, as a matter of administrative policy, the doubt should be resolved in favor of the claimant because of the remedial purposes of the act and because the risk of error should be placed on the party best able to bear it. So the Court of Appeals
0: simply upheld that decision? That's correct.
1: Under what
2: legislation was this?
1: That was under the Longshore Act. And, and, and who, was, uh, who was the suit against? It was against an employer? The suit was by an employer against uh, the deputy commissioner who had rendered the decision granting benefits. The controversy was between a, an employee and the employer.
2: But the pocket was not the government's pocket. It was an employer's pocket. and that. That's
3: correct. Is there a counterpart for any state workers' compensation schemes? It was not clear from the brief whether this is simply under the federal program's black lung benefits and, worker and the Longshore Act in state workers' compensation laws in their administration. Any state system have a true doubt rule?
1: I am not aware of uh, any state that does. I have not surveyed those cases.
3: There was a suggestion, I think, in one of the briefs that no state does.
1: I know there's a wide variety of state rules on these issues, and I'm not aware of whether any state uh, imposes a rule comparable to the true doubt rule. Thank you. The um, decision announced in, or the principle announced in F H McGraw v Lowe, this tie-breaking principle resolving doubts in favor of a claimant in doubtful cases, uh, continued to be announced consistently by the courts of appeals in reviewing Longshore Act cases, uh, and it continues to be applied in such cases today.
2: Excuse me, was it Court of Appeal? I thought you said I thought you said the Secretary had established the principle. Did the Court of Appeal establish it, or did it simply accept the Secretary's uh, uh, enunciation of
1: it? In F.H. McGraw versus Lowe, it was an administrative enunciation that was accepted by the Court of Appeals. Okay. And so The courts the court didn't
2: develop this. It was developed by the agency, and you're telling us that uh, the courts had accepted
1: it. It's not entirely clear where the, who made the first true doubt decision. Presumably, it happened. In F.H. McGraw, the court announced that uh, there, there was a, a principle frequently articulated by the courts, is the way they put it, um, that doubt should be resolved in favor of the claimant. Now, that was partly a statutory principle in the early cases interpreting the statute the statute should be construed favorably uh, to the award of benefits, but it was naturally adapted to the context of resolving factual disputes uh, when those made a difference to the outcome.
3: So some people attribute it to the D.C. Circuit back in 1932?
1: Well, there's the Burris case uh, back in 1932, and that was certainly one of the early cases that announced the principle uh, that in terms of statutory interpretation, um, benefit should, the benefit of the doubt should go to the claimant. That's correct. In the early 1970s, uh, the Congress changed the adjudication structure and brought in the Benefits Review Board as a part of the Department of Labor to do the initial level of review of these cases. The Benefits Review Board continued the Court's general policy, and they refined it into the um, narrow and clearly articulated rule that was applied in these cases and is before the Court today, that in cases of evidentiary equipoise, the claimant should re- re- receive the benefit of the doubt on, on factual issues. Okay.
5: What, is, what is your uh, theory for squaring 718.403 of 20 CFR, which says that the burden of proving a fact alleged in connection with any provision of this part shall rest with the party making the allegation? It is, is your theory that that is a general statement and that's superseded by the more specific provisions of 718.3 C...
1: Well, that is one way of reading it. But in fact, the Secretary interprets uh, the burden of proving language in, in the 403 regulation as imposing only a burden of going forward, not a burden of persuasion. Uh, much the same way this Court has interpreted the same or closely similar language in the Administrative Procedure Act in Section 7C, to refer only to a burden of production and not a burden of persuasion. It's
5: odd to talk about the uh, burden of, of, of going forward in, in the context of burden of proving a fact. That's a very odd use uh, for a a phrase that's intended to apply simply to the burden of going forward.
1: I will admit that it seems a little odd until, frankly, you start reading some of the cases in this area and the legislative history of the Administrative Procedure Act, and you realize that the terms burden of proving and burden of proof are used quite loosely, and they quite often are used in contexts where it's not clear or not necessary to distinguish um, whether one is talking about the burden of persuasion or the burden of production. The APA is probably the best example. The APA uses the term burden of proof in Section 7C, but this court has clearly held and held correctly that in light of the legislative history of Section 7C, that term refers only to a burden of going forward.
2: We didn't hold that. We said it in a footnote in a dictum, didn't we?
1: Well, respectfully, I would say it's not dictum because if, it were, uh, if the court had not held that, it would have had to go on to consider the issue raised by the employer in that case, that regardless of the administrative policies under the uh, Labor Board's interpretation, uh, the, the Administrative Procedure Act of its own force required that the um, general counsel bear the burden on all issues in the adjudication. You don't, you don't
3: think we could follow a, a rule of general application that law is not made in footnotes, that holdings are not stated in footnotes?
1: Well, I can say that I think we would feel very reluctant to ignore uh, a flat statement um, even in a footnote in one of this court's opinions. Well, but if it's and, a, if it's so important, why, why is it in a footnote? Well, because it was not essentially... The reason it's important is because the court decided that it was not essential to reach that issue in transportation management. But then doesn't your argument that it was a holding fall apart if it wasn't essential? No, because the reason it was not necessary to reach that issue in transportation management was because the term burden of proof in uh, Section 7C was construed to mean burden of production and not persuasion. If the court had construed it to mean burden of persuasion or thought that there was a serious issue there, it would have really had to evaluate, given a full-dress evaluation, because otherwise the employer would have had quite a substantial claim. It seems to me that to draw something out of a,
0: what is the third sentence in a footnote and say this is what decides the case is extraordinary.
1: Well, we certainly don't rely on simply the fact that the court has said that before. As I said, that was a, we think it was a holding, but whether it was a holding or not, it was correct as a statement of the law. The court in that footnote cited the Environmental Defense Fund case from... Uh, uh, from the D.C. Circuit, which hadn't been cited by the parties. Indeed, the parties in the case had not even made the argument that
2: that appears in the footnote. Hmm. The briefs in the in the case did not did not assert that Section 706 uh, applied only to burden of production. It came out
1: of nowhere. Well, I I where the footnote came from? Respectfully, I believe that the uh, employer's brief in Transportation Management did raise that argument, which is why the court was responding hmm. to it in the footnote. I don't
2: think they did. Not 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 as it appears in the footnote, that the whole section... But let's talk about the section. But Why do you say, never mind the footnote, let's look at the section. What, what does it say?
1: Exactly. Section 7C right. um, has two sentences that are considered to be relevant here. Uh, it's reprinted at the end of our brief on page uh, 1A. The first sentence of Section 7C... Um, except as otherwise provided by statute, the proponent of a rule or order has the burden of proof. Now, there's two things to note about that first. First is the, is the word the proponent. Now, respondents uh, labor mildly to, to convince us that it's a natural reading to the proponent, but we would simply point out that in any case that's before the agency, the agency is going to have to render one decision or the other, and there is always a proponent uh, of both results. There's a proponent of benefits in these cases and there's a proponent of the denial of benefits. So 7C's first sentence by itself doesn't tell us who it's talking about. In the legislative well, history. But
6: it, it does say uh, the proponent of a rule or order. Now, in an ordinary proceeding, who is that? Would it not be the claimant who wants the board to order payment?
1: Well, the claimant has brought the case to the board and the claimant wants the board to order payment, or wants the ALJ to award benefits. But it's equally true that once the case is there, the employer wants an order denying benefits and is a proponent of that order. I think that's quite clear if you look but at perhaps the...
6: Perhaps he's an opponent of the order.
1: That's possible. One can phrase it either way. Interestingly, I think if we look at the legislative history of the Administrative Procedure Act and of this section, what Congress said, what the committee said, was that the proponent of a rule order has the burden of proof means not only that the party initiating the proceeding has the general burden of coming forward, but that other parties who are proponents of some different result also for that purpose have a burden to maintain. We think that that makes quite clear that what Congress had in mind in using this language was a burden of coming forward, and a burden of coming forward that applies to every party, including an agency, in a a case where there is only an agency and, say, someone seeking a license. But does that
2: language suggest that that's all that it means? I mean, do uh, you really assert that when, when you speak of the, who has the burden of proof, that the normal meaning of that is, is not burden of persuasion?
1: I think it's very difficult after you look at all the cases to say that it has a normal meaning. It has uh, a meaning which encompasses both burdens of persuasion and burdens of production. It, ca- it can,
2: uh, it, it seems to me that the legislative history you refer to can be uh, explained as simply addressing the only part of the first sentence that, 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 that might be ambiguous. Whether it referred in addition to the burden of proof, also to the burden of persuasion. But
1: uh Well Well I'll simply point out that if you interpret it if one interprets it to mean burden of, of um, production, as the DC circuit did, and this is something the D C circuit pointed out, and um then it is perfectly consistent to say that both parties, all parties in the litigation have the same burden, which is what the legislative history says. Now, if we interpret it to mean burden of persuasion, that's incoherent, because only one party in any proceeding can have the burden of persuasion if there's a preponderance. And
2: and you think it's not incoherent to read Section 7C. The third third sentence you you assert establishes a preponderance of the evidence rule, right? It it says that... uh, a sanction may not be imposed or a rule or order issued except on consideration of the whole record or those part of it and supported by an accordance with the reliable probative and substantial evidence. That, that's essentially a preponderance of the evidence rule, right?
1: It certainly speaks to both the quantity and quality of evidence. So
2: Congress is shaking its finger at the agencies and saying, you must, proof must be made by a preponderance of the evidence. And in the first sentence it says, but of course you can, you can put the burden of, of establishing that preponderance upon any side you want. What what kind of a restriction is that on the agencies? It's none at all. I I find that's so extraordinary to think that Congress is going to go to to the trouble of establishing a preponderance rule and say anybody in the world can be given the burden of carrying the preponderance.
1: With respect, I I don't think that's correct. If you look at the legislative history, what Congress was particularly getting at when they passed the APA and the substantial evidence portions was to try to make sure that there was substantial evidence in the record to support any decision that was rendered by an agency, to get away from a sort of scintilla standard that some courts had applied before in upholding agency decisions. Now, they did that by saying, well, there must be competent probative substantial evidence in the record to support whatever result is reached. This court in Stedman did say that no external consideration of equity could supervene to require an agency to carry a higher burden of proof than the preponderance of the evidence under Section 7C. That's what Stedman really stands for. Um, But even taking it to say that Section 7C in the third sentence imposes a preponderance standard as the norm in all APA-governed litigation, the important thing to realize about a standard of evidence like preponderance is that it tells us absolutely nothing about what to do when the evidence is in equipoise.
0: Well, but uh, it seems to be ordinarily it does tell you. It says the party upon whom the burden of proof is placed fails
1: if the evidence is in equipoise. The, burden, the party upon whom the burden of persuasion is placed fails. That's exactly right. But that's why you need a burden of persuasion rule, which is different from the standard of proof. Now, the standard of proof may be preponderance well, well, of the where
0: evidence. Where do you get this, this distinction? I mean, uh, it doesn't seem to me it comes
1: out of the APA. Well, I think if you look at the first and third sentences of, um, of Section 7C, you can see that there is a distinction between talking about burdens of going forward and burdens of persuasion, uh, which is really covered by the first sentence and talking about the standard of evidence that whoever bears the burden of persuasion on a particular point has to meet. When was
0: 718403 adopted, the, the regulation that Justice Kennedy inquired about? As
1: far as I know, it was part of the original 718 regulations, which were adopted in 1980, I believe.
0: As a re, as a response to the enactment by Congress of, of the Black Lung Program?
1: Well, as a response in general to the transfer of functions from the Secretary of uh, HHS to the Secretary of Labor.
0: Well, did it have a predecessor in HHS? The 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 718403.
1: I don't believe that there was a specific predecessor to that regulation, no.
0: And it, no. was there any comment in connection with its adoption by the Secretary at the time of its adoption?
1: Yes, uh, there was a there was a preamble, a standard sort of preamble that went along with it.
0: And it's seven is 718403. Is that the regulation? you rely on to say that the Secretary's conduct here was justified, that it supports the
1: true doubt rule? Uh, no, not at all. There is... Well, what regulation is it? If you look on the previous page of our brief on page 1A, the regulation uh, 718.3C. 718.3C? Right.
0: And what does that say?
1: That says that it says two things. First of all, that enacting uh, the Black Lung Act, Congress intended that claimants be given the benefit of all reasonable doubt as to the existence of total or partial disability or death due to pneumoconiosis. And that, of course, is taken straight out of several iterations of legislative history on the acts.
0: But that that doesn't certainly support the use of the true doubt rule the way that uh, was used in this case, does it?
1: Well, we believe it does. We believe that when it goes on to say this part shall be construed and applied in that spirit and designed to reflect that intent, it certainly embodies the intent of the true doubt rule, which is on any particular factual issue. Now, yeah, that's very vague about embodies the intent of the true doubt rule. Uh, certainly,
0: this is, this is remarkably imprecise if that's your principal basis of reliance. It
1: does not state the true doubt rule in It certainly terms. doesn't. Right. We would say make two points about this. First of all, that there there has not been a need under either act to promulgate a specific regulation on this issue because up until very recently it has not been challenged. It's been a long course of consistent adjudication and there's been no reason to articulate a more specific policy. A specific policy, including the True Doubt Rule in the terms on which we rely, has been articulated in the 70s and through the 80s in the decisions of the Benefits Review Board, which of course is part of the Department of Labor. Now, had the Secretary been dissatisfied with the way the BRB was applying these rules, presumably he might have um, issued a regulation on this issue, but there's well, been no need to do Mr. that. Mr.
6: Dumont, is, is uh, the burden of proof a matter of substantive law, do you suppose? It can be. Yes. Oh, no, I'm not sure it's even open to regulatory
1: change, is it? It would not be open to regulatory change if the statute itself provided uh, a rule for the burden of persuasion. But the statutes in this case, uh, if you look at them, uh, are quite interesting the way they're phrased. They're not phrased in terms of a claimant is entitled to benefits if he or she uh, persuades the adjudicator that X, Y, and Z. They're phrased in terms, in much more passive terms, benefits will be provided in respect of certain conditions and that sort of thing. There's nothing in the statute that resolves the issue of where the ultimate burden of persuasion lies on a contested factual point. In that Except context- incorporation of the APA, if, if we disagree with you on the meaning of the APA. If you agree, if you believe that the APA imposes a a preponderant standard on all litigation where it applies, then we would still say we win this case because we think that uh, the APA, Section 7C in particular, and the APA in general provide for um, exceptions. Section 7C starts out except as otherwise provided by statute. And we think, as we've articulated in our brief, that there are provisions of both statutes that can be read to uh, accept this particular. Uh, application of, a, of an evidentiary rule from the sweep of the APA.
3: But if you're right about your, your first interpretation that the statute, assuming the statute doesn't speak to it and 7C is only production burden, are you saying that every agency that doesn't have a specific statutory allocation of the persuasion burden can decide for itself whether to have a true doubt rule or require preponderance? So it's it's totally the agency's option.
1: Well, we think it it puts within the agency's sphere of decision making the same kind of issue it has on, the same kind of decision it has on many issues, which is what is consistent with congressional policy and the intent of the statute. And that any such decision would be subject to review. And in many contexts, one would find that uh, it would not be plausible to to, um, believe that Congress had intended for there to be a burden of persuasion placed on one party or the other.
3: Do you have any idea how many agencies are in this situation? Would they have? No explicit statutory allocation of the persuasion burden, and so they have only 7C, which you say is only the burden of coming forward?
1: I'm not aware of exactly what a count would be, no.
5: Counsel, your your, your position is that if a statute says, except as provided by statute, the rule should be X, then there's another statute that says agencies may promulgate regulations in accordance with the purposes of this Act that the latter overcomes the former. I find that an extraordinary contention.
1: You're speaking in terms of the Black Long Act and its incorporation?
5: Well, yes, you say except as provided, otherwise provided by statute, can be overcome by another statute which says an agency can promulgate a rule.
1: Well, I think it's important to note that the, when the APA is incorporated in the Black Lung Act, for instance, it's incorporated under a regime which first of all says that the APA doesn't apply except as specifically provided, then it's incorporated from the Longshore Act, but with a specific statutory proviso that's accepted as otherwise provided by regulation. We think that by the time you work through the various levels of statutory and regulatory analysis, uh, it's fairly clear that the Secretary has the ability.
5: Do you have any authority for a case which uh, imposes a, a, a similar analysis and comes to a similar conclusion?
1: I'm not aware of a case that involves quite this kind of statutory uh, structure. With your permission, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very
0: well, Mr. Dumont. Uh, Mr. Solomons, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and
7: may it please the Court, the True Doubt Rule is not sound policy that's based in fairness and experience. It's an arbitrary and opportunistic principle that has come to this Court in search of a justification on the basis of a theory that was developed, I think, exclusively for this litigation. There
6: is well, no valid- they do have something to look at in that footnote in Transportation Management. It's not new well, I, with this, this litigation, I
7: suppose. Well, I think the footnote in transportation management, in their argument, is taken out of its context. Uh, if you read that last sentence in the footnote, it certainly does say that Section 7C imposes only a burden of production. But that's not right, because Section 7C does a myriad of things. It's a whole instruction well,
6: book. Uh for you to prevail, do we have to disavow that footnote?
7: No, I don't have to disavow the footnote. The footnote in context says that that first sentence imposes a burden of production. I think that, the, that Section 7c in its totality also imposes a burden of persuasion as well as a burden of production. It carries through the, the proceedings by, by providing it provides, uh, guides to the administrative law judge on how to conduct the proceedings, how to find facts, and how to do the things that the administrative law judge has to do. And what it says is that if there are facts to be found, administrative law judge, then they must be supported by the weight of the evidence. It does not trouble me at all, and I, I hope it doesn't trouble the court, that when a party, as was the case in transportation management, put new facts into play in the form of an affirmative defense, that the administrative law judge there also was required, if the facts were to be found, will find them if they were in accordance with the preponderance of the evidence
2: well that's just to say that the decision was right in the case it's not to say that the sentence which we're focusing on was right you're going to spend an awful lot of your argument explaining why that sentence is right if you insist on saying we don't have to repudiate it it's, it's a lot easier to explain why we should repudiate it
7: well, I, it's easy to explain how you should repudiate it, but it, but they've taken it out of context in making the argument that's based on it. I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think that it say they've taken
2: it out of context. All you mean is that the case should have been decided that way anyway, but not on the ground. Surely not on the ground that sections that 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 that, uh, that the section in question uh, 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 involves only uh, on, only the burden of production rather than the.
7: I do, I do not believe that Section 7C involves only the burden of production. I don't see how you can reach that conclusion reading it or reading the, the materials that are in the legislative history of the APA. It simply doesn't say that. That is a, a, a restrictive and narrow reading which does not gain any support from, from either the provision itself or from the legislative history or from any normal, ordinary, common usage of those kinds of uh, of provisions.
8: We, we used the same usage uh, the court did in the Ward's Cove opinion, didn't it, in describing the uh, so-called burden of proof on the business justification? They said that was just a burden of going forward. Well, uh, so The that footnote doesn't a, seem to be unique, I guess, is, is the point.
7: No, I don't think that, that it, it may not be unique, but that's not an Administrative Procedure Act
8: case, as I recall. Well, it, it isn't, but the, the terms that, that it's using are, are common terms. I mean, it's, it's, we're still talking about burden of proof.
7: Yes, and I think that that what you will find in in the jurisprudence uh, is that occasionally uh, the terms burden of proof are used to mean only burden of production, but I think rarely, and in certain circumstances, the the term burden of proof is meant to encompass the whole um, fact-finding process. I think the more natural reading of it is to encompass the whole fact-finding process, but I think that it is not necessary in the context of the Administrative Procedure Act, to get too much involved in that first sentence only. Because even in in the legislative materials, they say you you must read all of these provisions together. If you read all of the provisions together, then I think it becomes clear that they mean by burden of proof, they, they mean burden of persuasion, because they said it two sentences later.
3: But would it make much of the sense for this court to have interpreted the first sentence when in the very same section, the ultimate control, as you say, is the third sentence, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to have a footnote that says, well, this is what the first sentence says, but thats going that initial impression is going to be uh, contradicted by the third sentence? Well,
7: Justice Ginsburg, you're right. The problem, I think, in this case was that it was not, because the way it was briefed. I, mean, I have reviewed the briefs in Transportation Management, and although the case comes after this court's decision in Stedman, which I think explains all of this very clearly, Uh, Stedman wasn't mentioned. The government does not argue what it argues here. The government argued in their briefs in that case that this was an affirmative defense and it was perfectly fine uh, to to have those facts introduced and to place the burden, if it was the agency's choice to do that, on the the party that was the proponent of those facts. That's precisely what they argued. Um, I think it was a failure of advocacy, in that case, not a, a uh, fully informed footnote, perhaps.
3: But in any event, we, I think that we can agree that the government didn't make up its position for this case. We we're told in the brief, and I don't think you question it, that the true doubt notion has been uh, around since the 30s,
7: since that Burris case. Well, I I take issue with that. I I don't think that's true. The true doubt notion, that is, this kind of non the the rule of non-persuasion, is pretty new. I think it probably first emerged in the Department of Labor brief within the last year. It is certainly true that for many years there was a principle, and it's a principle that still exists, that when interpreting these remedial statutes where there is an ambiguity in the statute that cannot be resolved in some natural way, that you may resolve it in favor of the claimant.
8: Well, that's, in other words, on, on an issue of statutory interpretation? Yes.
7: And I believe that in the early cases that the department is referring to, you will never see, certainly never see the words true doubt, you will never see an analysis from those courts that looks anything like what you have in the briefs here. What you will see is a situation where the employer has gone in, in the face of some proof, and argued on appeal. Under the substantial evidence standard, that the claimant didn't prove to some very substantial degree uh, that, that, uh, he that he should have been awarded benefits. And the courts are saying, well, he doesn't have to do it to that degree. These are remedial statutes. And in some of the other cases, these are simply embellishments on the substantial evidence review in those cases.
0: If you want to find... What what practical difference is there between the kind of standard you you say the courts did apply and the the true doubt rule? Well, I think that the
7: the standard that the courts did apply in those other cases has nothing to do with tied evidence. Nothing to do with what? Tied evidence. Oh, tied counts for the run. What we have, the, 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 the rule that we're talking about, I think, first emerges... In a 1968 decision of the Fifth Circuit, and then it's reiterated, this is with any kind of articulation that makes sense, uh, by the Fifth Circuit and then once or twice by some other courts. What they say is that in these programs, the standard of proof is something less than a preponderance, although the Fifth Circuit itself admits they don't know what to call it or how much less. And that's that's something we clearly take issue with. The the true doubt rule, as it's presented to you, is the Department of Labor on its best behavior, uh, arguing about something that seems somewhat more reasonable than uh, we believe it to be. Certainly, in our experience, it has not operated that
6: Well, how is it applied and interpreted? I mean, mean, if uh, if the claimant puts on a minimum amount of evidence and there is substantial evidence on the other side. Is deference given on appellate review to the initial fact finder's determination that the evidence is in equipoise, even though the appellate reviewer might not have thought it could be in
7: equipoise? Almost always. Almost always. Almost always the the deference is given to the the finder of fact. By the appellate reviewer, Department of Labor, has a couple of cases that they can bring out and say, "Well, this time some control was exercised over what the administrative law judge did." But that is extremely rare, and I, I would offer these two cases as examples of that. These two cases present evidence that, for those of us who are familiar with these kinds of cases, is not that close. We have cited. In in our briefs, and and many other cases are cited in the amicus briefs, where administrative law judges are resolving all doubt, any doubts, any reasonable doubt, imposing a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, um, and that's not controlled.
2: Well, how could a reviewing court determine that the evidence was in fact in equipoise when it is not even permitted to determine whether there was a preponderance. I mean, in in the ordinary case where the agency is applying a preponderance standard, the appellate court doesn't review to see whether there really was a preponderance. It just reviews to see whether there was substantial evidence. So it seems to me quite impossible for a reviewing court to to determine whether there was really an equipoise. All it could say is there was no substantial evidence on one side.
7: Justice Scalia, it is as impossible to do that as it is for administrative law judges to repeatedly, in case after case after case, find this complex evidence absolutely tied. But that's what we see in these cases. Well, we're told that the figure is
3: under 10 percent, Well, it's not case after case after case. Uh, That under the um, Black Lung Act, that that was a figure for total plaintiff's uh, claimant's recoveries, wasn't it?
7: Uh, I would dispute that figure. I can't imagine how the department could empirically come to that. What we did was we looked at the Benefits Review Board's reporter, which reports selected administrative law judge decisions, far from all of them. And what we found was an increasing utilization of the true doubt rule from a percentage back in the early 80s, when it wasn't necessary in the black lung program because we had all these presumptions, um, to somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 to 20 uh, percent in current cases, but we see it all the time, and, and in Longshore, in Longshore cases, they see it all the time as well. One of the things about Longshore cases is that 90 to 95 percent of them are never litigated; they are not contested by the employer. It's only the hard cases that are contested by the employer.
3: But you're not contesting that on these records. The fact finder could have found for the claimant by a preponderance, and the Third Circuit said that the case would have to go back for the ALJ to make that ultimate decision. So the Third Circuit must have felt there was enough evidence for a fact finder to find a preponderance in favor of the claimant.
7: Well, I think the Third Circuit didn't want to engage in fact finding. Um, I would expect that, that in both of these cases, if they went back and were reviewed under a preponderance of the evidence standard, that benefits would probably be denied. But that's not... I haven't analyzed the, the records in these cases in a way that puts me in the shoes of the judge. <coughs> and I think the Third Circuit was correct to, to um, let the judge do the job in that account. Uh... <coughs> There are several observations that, that, that I would like to bring to the court's attention that I, help, I think will help focus the case. First among those is that there is no word or phrase or provision in the Black Lung Act or in the Longshore Act that prescribes or, or, for that matter, even suggests a true doubt rule. There is nothing even close. The Department of Labor has asked you to defer to its interpretation of these statutes the Department of Labor has not cited a single word of any of these statutes. May I ask,
4: in that connection, Mr. Solomon, do you contend that the 20 CFR 718.3C is invalid? Is uno- no,
7: I don't think it's invalid. I think that first of all, it's a it's a preamble rule. I don't think that it can be read to um, to establish a true doubt principle. Let me say that there are three provisions in the Department of Labor's regulations. Way back in 718, 300s, and 400s, and then there's a published commentary in the Federal Register where the Department of Labor says the burden of proving these things is on the claimant, and where this presumption doesn't apply, the burden of proving is going to be on the claimant, two separate provisions. And then they even went so far as to publish commentary in the Federal Register when the statute was amended, and all of these burden-shifting presumptions in black loan were repealed in 1981— They published new provisions in the Federal Register, and there they said that uh, we want facts now to be decided for the claimants in accordance with the weight of the evidence. Now, they've said that that doesn't mean anything, but it seems to me that when you have a complex of regulations over here, that it seemed to very specifically address these kinds of questions in a way that is fully consistent with the Administrative Procedure Act and the ordinary normal way that adjudications occur. The Department goes over here to a preamble provision which doesn't say what they say it says uh, by its plain language.
2: Indeed, if you follow its plain language, they would have have to apply a... A criminal, a, a criminal standard to the employer. He, he would have
8: to show that he's not liable beyond a reasonable doubt.
7: And then I think we, we would ask you to do a rational basis analysis. I don't see that that is appropriate.
8: What, what about the narrow argument under the Black Lung Act that, that under 718-403, 7, 7, uh, the, uh, the, the issue was an issue of, of the uh, administrator of the secretary's interpretation of, of the department's own regulations. Uh, And if they may reasonably interpret the reg uh, as being simply a production reg rather than a a burden of persuasion reg, uh, that there certainly isn't any conflict between that and the true doubt rule, uh, and that therefore that ought to dispose of the the black lung case, which is before us here.
7: Well, uh, first, I think you have to deal with the Administrative Procedure Act there, and, and in the cases that deal with Efforts by agencies to alter the Administrative Procedure Act, some very recent ones in the D.C. Circuit and some older ones by this Court, um, the holdings have uniformly been that the agency may not write a regulation that is inconsistent with one of the minimum basic standards of the Administrative Procedure Act. If
8: if that doesn't... doesn't Which which turns the argument into the invalidity of the regulation as the Secretary construes it. As it is construed, yes, mm -hmm. it does. And,
7: and, and, but it's not necessary to construe it that way because I think the regulation still serves a useful purpose. There have been cases where there is, there are in those regulations, we've cited one, it's a good case for this. It's called Amex-Cole versus Anderson, I believe. And, and there, there was a, the Department of Labor has prescribed standards for total disability, some very complex medical standards, and, and there was just kind of a gap. The Court said, well, we're going to resolve this gap in favor of the claimant because that's an appropriate method of construction for these statutes, and I don't dispute that.
4: Mr. Solomons, can I go back to the regulation? I must confess that I'm not sure I follow either you or Justice Scalia's comment, because it says that uh, all reasonable doubt shall be resolved in favor of the claimant. It doesn't have any requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in it. And I was just wondering, why is not true doubt, when the evidence is in perfect equipoise, a species of reasonable doubt? Well, I suppose that... that I suppose that, that if the hearing officer just does, can't make up his mind and a reasonable judge couldn't, wouldn't you say that he has reasonable doubt about the outcome?
7: Well, I mean, the, the hearing officer has got a job to do, and his job is to to, to conduct these proceedings in, in accordance with the normal rules and the APA rules. I mean, I, I can't really argue with you about whether this was a species. Maybe it is a species, but... It still does not say. If, if The department has told the court that this has been going on for 60-some years. This is a big, important rule in this litigation, both under the Longshore Act and under the Black Long Act. There's nothing that articulates the rule any place in these regulations. Now, if this reflects 60 years of jurisprudence, then I don't see it. Now, maybe it could be read into it, but I think it's a very hard read, and it becomes a more difficult read if you look at the rest of the regulations. And, of course, in Longshore, then, they have to give up on the case entirely. The rest there's of the nothing.
4: regulations require to read burden of proof to mean burden of persuasion, which, of course, is not an unreasonable reading. But isn't that what you're referring to in the rest of the regulations?
7: Well, there's more to it than that. There's there's some discuss- there's commentary in the regulations. There are two, two separate regulations which address burden of proof by using language. Actually, burden of proving, which may be a little different. It implies something more than just burden of proof uh, that uh, are are apparently directly on point. And And
2: I I thought your point was that the third sentence of 718.3c itself uh, contradicts uh, that reading of the first sentence, since it goes on to say... uh, not, notwithstanding what we said in the first <laughs> sentence, uh, you don't make an award unless there's a reasonable basis for awarding it.
7: Well, and I'm sure the department. Certain,
2: would, and it's not a reasonable basis, to say, well, we really can't tell whether there's a reasonable basis.
7: Well, I'm sure the department say that a tie is a reasonable basis. I, I can't. I, the they require to, a I think, phima-facia ultimately goes no place.
2: They
4: require a prima facie case, and we're only concerned if then the employer meets the case with evidence of equal weight. It would have been a reasonable b- basis, yet there had been no defense put in. That's the way they
7: read that. And that uh, that could be. Yeah. But, I mean, look at even with the title. It's a scope and intent of this part. That doesn't seem to announce a rule. Uh, and then you have another rule which which talks about, uh, which is entitled, is uh, a title having something to do with burdens. And you'd certainly expect to go look to the rule that talked about burdens to find out what the burdens were and not to uh, kind of general discussion of what this statute was all about. It's very difficult, I think. And it is not the natural or normal reading of 718.3, to come to the conclusion that the department comes to. I think they, they come to it because it, it, there's no authority. And that's, that has always been the problem with this, with the rule. The rule is optionally applied by administrative law judges, and
0: from our point of view, it is... A... Wait, are you referring to the so-called true doubt? I'm going
7: back, yeah, I'm going back to the true doubt rule.
0: Where do we first find the words "true doubt" used to describe this rule that is being supported here by by the government?
7: In a benefits review board decision in 1978, not so much naming a rule, but I, I guess distinguishing it from some other kind of doubt, uh, it was a case called Provence, which is cited to you, uh, where the department where the uh, claimant had gone in and said, "You have to resolve all doubts for me because I'm the claimant," and the board said, "No, we only resolve." true doubts for you uh, in that particular case. Um, can't disagree with that, can you? Well, uh, I do disagree with it. I don't think that that is correct. Um, uh, Some other points that I think are are important, and... uh, this is not a rule that's used in or anything like it in state workers' compensation laws. We have surveyed them. Uh, it's not a rule that's used in the Federal Employees Compensation Act that covers this court and the Department of Labor and folks from the Solicitor General's office. It's not a rule that's used in the common law. It's not a rule that's used by the Social Security Administration. And all of these are remedial, th- these are remedial programs or statutes or, or, or just provisions of the law. That, that recognize the rights of people to recover monetary damages for their losses. and
2: Maybe the agency is just being too honest. I mean, um, what, what goes on in many administrative programs in the state, I gather, which are set up to benefit these, uh, these workers, is that uh, if it's close in fact, the uh, decision-maker will just say, we'll, we'll apply this in effect and say, in close cases, I'll find a preponderance in favor of the worker. And you'd have no problem with that. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. You'd have to take it up on appeal, and on appeal the court would look at it and it would not reweigh it. It would just say, well, there's some substantial evidence favoring the claimant and we have a generous, uh, a generous decision here. We'll let it stand.
7: And that's why this rule engenders such amazing hostility, and it's hard, it would be hard for me to articulate the degree of hostility this rule engenders on the defense side of these cases. You're used
2: to getting bad calls, but but not used to it being admitted. Is
7: that it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> if, if the administrative law judge... is is held to the rigor of a normal standard of proof, and the administrative law judge is going to be required to carefully review the record, sure, in a close case. I don't think there has ever been a close enough, a, a real close case, a tie, where an administrative law judge or any judge couldn't find a reason to rule in whatever direction the judge thought was appropriate. That's why this rule is so problematic for us, because the cases where the rule is ordinarily applied are cases where it isn't that close, and then we have to take it up on a piano. And this rule also, by the way, inc- increases the volume of litigation in these cases very substantially because the defense is so mad at having been treated this way and having had the evidence that it often has painstakingly developed, thrown out the window or discounted just because they don't like them,
0: they don't like the party, that uh, it will well, be why, why do you say that? You're, you're saying that the uh, administrative law judge doesn't like the party?
7: Uh... Well, I think the rule doesn't. The rule discounts the evidence because of the identity of the party. The rule says that the persuasion of this evidence, not the bulk weight, we're not talking about that, but the persuasion of this evidence is going to be reduced because we want to favor a particular party. That makes a litigant mad. It's
0: not a fair adjudication. As far as we're concerned, when that well, but, you on. know, so supposing that uh, you're, you're talking about a, a court case and uh, the ordinary rule is that a plaintiff has to pre- prove the his side of the case by a preponderance. But Congress steps in and says, well, in this particular kind of case, you've got to prove it by clear and convincing evidence. Well, surely that, that doesn't make all plaintiffs mad that they've been told they have to meet a higher standard of proof. No, I don't think so. And
7: and I think when Congress does it, uh, it it does make it go down an awful lot easier. And that's particularly true in these programs. Workers' compensation laws uh, are, are vehicles for the largest privately funded social insurance programs in the United States. And they're very carefully balanced and controlled. Even if their primary objective is the compensation of deserving workers, they have lots of other objectives. And in workers' compensation, as it's true in the federal side and it's certainly true in the state side as well, the employers and insurance carriers and unions and, and, and claimant advocates work together with legislatures to make sure that these programs are an appropriate level of acceptability and that they provide appropriate benefits to people. They're complex programs. And if that kind of provision was in a workers' compensation law, then I can assure you that it it was a provision that was bargained for, that was properly debated in the legislative process, and that was understood, even if somebody lost the debate. It becomes a more acceptable proposition. What we have here is a situation, and clear and convincing in reverse, I guess, is perhaps what the Department of Labor is talking about. But here we have a situation where the Department, without any authority, without having tested this principle... In the ordinary way, through uh, the the analyses that it's put to in Congress, uh, the Department of Labor has just decided that they would like to have this principle used, and that they would like to have uh, the volume of approved claims increased, or for whatever reason, it doesn't doesn't really make any difference. It's not, I think that from what I gather from the people that I I talk to about this, we can't get... The kind of fair hearing that we would want to have if this principle for this kind of principle because it's a very important one and it's a very powerful one just by litigating it against the government and looking at statutes this is the kind of thing that congress does control first of all and that's not an unimportant point it ought to control
4: may i ask just to be sure i understand your position before you sit down on section 7c of the administrative procedure act do you disagree with the interpretation of the administrative procedure act in the footnote
7: I, I think that the footnote is incomplete, and therefore I disagree with it.
4: But Now, do you take the position that, that in any administrative proceeding in which the defendant or respondent has an affirmative defense, that the agency has the burden of persuasion that the affirmative defense is insufficient?
7: No, I don't think that's the way it works. I think that, that if somebody puts facts into play by alleging an affirmative defense that's supported by facts— and the administrative law judge in the ordinary course of things is going to have to find those facts or not find them the
4: statute if you read it as burden of persuasion says the proponent of the order has yeah. the burden of persuasion you don't you don't read it that
7: literally. well it troubles me because i think that we don't i know where where my interpretation goes with these statutes i guess it troubles me to think that where where uh simply throwing that out, Gus. I, I can't answer that for you, and so I'm not comfortable just saying it. It might be, it may be right. It certainly has some logic to it.
1: Thank you. There are no further questions.
0: Thank you, Mr. Solomons. Well, Mr. Dumont, you have three minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Um, a couple of brief points. <clears throat> First of all, this uh, position that the true doubt rule was not developed for this litigation. Uh, on the Longshore side, let me refer you just back once again to the F.H. McGraw case, which I think you will find factually, strikingly similar to the Maher case. Uh, In other sources, uh, the department's uh, instructions... doesn't mention the word true doubt, does it? No, it does not use the same words, but I really think... I thought
0: respondents' contention was that the so-called true doubt rule is kind of putting a label on something that has been going on for a long while.
1: Well, it puts a label on it, and frankly, I think... All you could say about this is the Department of Labor and the Benefits Review Board have narrowed and made this concept much more specific to the rule that's in front of the Court today. And they're hardly to be faulted for having taken something that was more general and more vague and made it more specific and uh, confined its application. Um, the rule in these terms was, is in the Secretary's instructions to adjudicators, that which, which were promulgated in 1980, uh, which are cited in note, 20, note 14 on page 27 of our brief, uh, it's in commentary to regulations that uh, were issued in the early 1980s. Uh, it's in a long series of board decisions from the 70s and 80s. It's simply not true. It's been accepted by five or six circuits. It's simply not true to say that this is something we made up for this case. Of
2: course, McGraw was before the APA, wasn't it? Oh, that's correct. So that rule could may have been okay before then.
1: I think it's equally fair to infer that uh, Congress, when it passed the APA, did not intend to uh, disturb well-settled principles of adjudication under pre-existing statute. Didn't
2: an earlier version of Section 7C read, the proponent of a rule or order shall have the burden of proceeding, except as statutes otherwise provide? And that was changed in the final version, the burden of proof.
1: That was changed, and I think the legislative history makes quite clear that change uh, did not import any substance. Did not eliminate
2: the burden of proceeding.
1: I did not eliminate it, but I think it would be difficult, again, to have uh, a situation where you have burdens of persuasion on two different parties, where that's clearly what Congress contemplated, was that whatever burden they were talking about was going to be on more than one party in the case. Finally, I'd like to point out that there's really nothing, there's nothing um, necessary about calling something an affirmative defense. As you pointed out, Justice Scalia, uh, saying that something is an affirmative defense it states conclusion, not some sort of natural fact. In transportation management... The point was whether or not somebody was liable for a violation of the federal labor laws. The Labor Board had decided as a matter of its discretion in administering the statute to put a burden of proof on one issue involved in deciding that on the employer, and the Court upheld that as a matter of policy, deferring to the Board's judgment and finding that it was reasonable for the Board to take that judgment. That's why it's called an affirmative defense, because it was reasonable to place the burden of proof on the employer. All it really points out is that you have to look in every statutory context at the particular context involved. In workers' compensation, uh, we have a context where, of course, you want to uh, require, as we do require, the employee to come forward with evidence.
0: Thank you, Mr. Dumont. The case is submitted.